0: Well, the text for the message this morning comes from the book of Psalms. If you have Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Psalms and we'll read from Psalm 55. If you don't have Bibles with you, you're, of course, invited to read the text as it is projected above me. Psalm 55. And we'll be focusing especially on verses 16 and 17. Those are the only verses that will be projected. I will read a few more as we become familiar with the context in which the specific request of verses 16 and 17 is made. Psalm 55, the superscription above the psalm, which was likely added at a later date, says, For the director of music with stringed instruments, a mesquil, of David, and of course uh, scholars are very perplexed about what a mesquile might mean. I think that the best conjecture is that this word refers to a piece of instruction. So David has had an experience. He does not give us the details of this experience because he wants it to be applicable to us all in whatever situation we might find ourselves, and not the narrow or specific situation in which David experienced these things, but he begins in verse 1, listen to my prayer, O God, do not ignore my plea, hear me and answer me, my thoughts trouble me, and I am distraught. And he goes on to talk about enemies in the city, how he wants to fly away, and then he indicates that it was specifically a friend that had betrayed him. And then we get down to the verses of our text, verses 16 and 17. And here's what David says. Excuse me. As for me, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. This is the word of the Lord. From the monastic age, we've inherited a proverb that I find particularly wonderful. I don't know whether you've heard it or not, but the proverb goes as follows. Stay where you are until the Spirit compels you to go elsewhere. Stay where you are until the Spirit compels you to go elsewhere. Stay where you are, in the place where you live, with the people with whom you live. The Christian life, you see, is best lived right here, right now. It's not best lived somewhere else, at some other time. And yet, I'm sure this is an experience for you. It is an experience at times for me. We are tempted so often, aren't we, to move to go somewhere else, to be with other people, in a different climate, perhaps. And we're tempted to move because of the particular challenges and difficulties that we encounter in life. And we sometimes think to ourselves, if only I were to live somewhere else, I would be happy. If only I were to work with other people, I would be at peace. And this temptation, you understand, is very realistic for us. Our society is very mobile, and so it's very possible for many of us to uproot and actually move somewhere else. It's possible for us in a way it wasn't possible for previous generations. An early church father once said, a tree frequently transplanted does not bear much fruit. A tree frequently transplanted does not bear much fruit. And so what we need in our lives as Christians is to cultivate the virtue of stability, of steadfastness, of staying put, of being durable. And what helps us, I think, to cultivate the virtue of stability is what I've been calling A rule of life. This is, of course, not novel with me. It's an ancient idea that goes back to the early centuries of the Christian church. And by a rule of life, I mean a set of practices that reorder our lives around the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the metaphor that we've been using in this series is a trellis. Because Jesus in John 15 says, I am the vine and you are the branches and he invites us to live in him, to remain in him, to abide in him. But if we as the vine are to be fruitful, we need to be attached to some kind of support structure. Those who work in vineyards will tell you that vines don't do well apart from having a trellis, apart from having a support structure. So if we have a support structure, a set of practices that reorder our lives around the Lord Jesus Christ, we can, as Jesus tells us, live in Christ, remain in Christ, abide in Christ. Now, last Sunday, I introduced the first rule in this rule of life that I want us as members of the church, and if you're a guest, you can consider it, The first practice in a rule of life, and it was this, go to church weekly. Now, the second rule I want to present to you for your consideration is no less revolutionary. It is this, pray three times a day, minimally at least. But if you're not in the habit of prayer, this is the place to start. Pray three times a day. And as we consider this rule, we're going to look at a couple of verses from Psalm 55, and we're going to see two things. First of all, the function of prayer, and then secondly, the discipline of prayer. So David is the author of this psalm, and he writes this psalm, if you read the context, and we read a little bit about it, in the context of difficulty. He is facing conspiracy Within the city of Jerusalem, there are rumors, there is slander, there is fake news. And as you read through the psalm, you discover that David is particularly distressed because he's been opposed by someone he knew to be a friend. A close confidant has betrayed him, and David is distraught. He is troubled, he is angry, he says in the psalm. Fear and trembling have beset me. Now, what happens when we fear? Well, our heart rate increases. Our pain perception decreases. Our hearing sharpens. These are all good things. When we see an approaching car, when we hear a growling dog... Our body physiologically responds quickly to deal with the danger. And there are two routes we often take when we fear, and they are fight or flight. Well, how does David uh, respond when fear and trembling beset him? Well, he's not inclined to fight. There's no indication in this psalm that he wants to take revenge, that he wants to respond to his enemies in kind, that he's going to plot against them or attack them. He is not inclined at all to fight. But what we discover is that he is inclined to flight. He says in the psalm, Oh, how I wish that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly far away. I would go to the desert and experience quiet there. This is the impulse that David has in the context in which he finds himself. But the interesting thing is that David doesn't go. He doesn't fly away. He stays put. Stay where you are until you're compelled by the Spirit to go somewhere else. A tree, frequently transplanted, does not bear much fruit Well, then how does David process this fear that he has? How does David deal with the anxiety he experiences? Well, with prayer. Verse 16, as for me, I call to God. And then verse 17, I cry out in distress. In Eugene Peterson's The Message, I sigh with deep sighs. There are actually two verbs here in the Hebrew that are captured well by the New American Standard Bible. I will complain and moan. I will complain and moan. Now, don't you appreciate the earthiness of David's prayers? Don't we think it's inappropriate to complain? And moan to the Lord. But David says, Evening, morning, and noon, I moan and complain to the Lord. David doesn't pray, Lord, I thank you for this beautiful day and this beautiful place and these beautiful people. In his prayer, he says, Today sucks. And I wish I could go elsewhere. Lord, get me a plane ticket to a deserted island with palm trees so I can escape all of this. Well, here's a question for you. Are you distracted in your prayer? When you pray, does your mind wander elsewhere to other things? Is it perhaps because you're so focused on trying to pray the right prayer Is it because you're praying for the things that you think you should be praying for? Things that ultimately you don't really care about? What about being honest with the Lord? What about complaining and moaning? Do you think that the Lord can handle the earthiness of your prayers? Do you think the Lord can handle you saying, Today sucks. I don't like the people I'm with. I'm struggling in life. My life is spiraling downward. I'm troubled. I'm angry. Do you think the Lord can handle that? Because what's distracting you is probably the thing you should be praying about. And your distractions are probably your real want trying to break into your prayer. And so maybe what you should be praying about is about your distractions. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe the distractions are assigned to you that these are the things you should be praying about. Because I'll tell you this, people who are on a sinking ship never struggle with distraction in their prayers. Do you get that point? People on a sinking ship never struggle with distractions in their prayers because they're praying what they're feeling. They're praying about the situation in which they find themselves. Well, notice three things about prayer. First, prayer does not immediately relieve our distress. Prayer does not immediately relieve our distress. David began the psalm in prayer, and he began the psalm in in distress. Lord, hear me. Answer me. I'm distraught. I'm troubled. And as you read through the psalm, and you get to our particular verse, he's crying out again. Lord, I cry out to you. I cry out to you in distress. I call out to you. And it seems as if nothing has changed in terms of his situation which is what leads me to make this first point, that prayer doesn't immediately relieve distress. Second point, prayer doesn't immediately relieve distress, but it does lighten the darkness. Because as you read on in the verses of our text, you'll discover that though it seems as if nothing has changed, there is something that has changed. And what has changed over the course of David's prayer is his confidence in the Lord's help. Because he doesn't only pray, as for me, I call out to God. He goes on and says, and the Lord saves me. And verse 17, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. So prayer doesn't immediately relieve our distress, but does lighten the darkness because... It elevates our thoughts above our situation to God Himself. It elevates our thoughts beyond our situation to God Himself. And as David is praying, he's getting a clear picture of who God is and a clear picture of what God does. And he realizes, and this is what you realize in prayer, that God reigns and that God saves and that God hears. And he goes on to say in verse 19 God is enthroned from of old and does not change. So prayer lightens the darkness, but isn't a gimmick to get what you want. It is true that people at times receive direct and startling answers to their prayers. And in one of his writings, C.S. Lewis speculates that this is especially true of people around the time of their conversion, shortly before their conversion or shortly after, and that as you proceed in your Christian life, these kinds of experiences tend to diminish. I wonder if that's true for you. In my own experience, this is true for me. When we have people who come to blessings, and there are a number uh, in the process now who are exploring Christ, and, and quite a few of them have had these very, very unusual experiences where they cry out and they get what seems to be a direct answer to their prayer. And C.S. Lewis suggests that as we mature and grow in the Christian life, these kinds of experiences tend to diminish why might that be? Doesn't God care about mature believers? Doesn't God love those who are growing in their commitment to him? Why doesn't he provide direct answers to our prayers? Well, I want you as you reflect on this passage to see that Jesus, that David here is walking in the shadow of Jesus. And that Jesus especially was someone who was betrayed by a close friend and therefore had to experience all kinds of duress, all kinds of anxiety, all kinds of trouble. And what did Jesus do in that time of trouble? Well, he prayed. And our minds go to that episode narrated in the Gospels where Jesus, in the shadow of the cross, enters the Garden of Gethsemane, and he feels defeated, and he's overwhelmed, and he's anxious. His closest companions are asleep. He has blood on the sweat of his brow. And he faces the prospect of the Father's judgment, of God's anger against sin descending on him. And he prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way? Please, Father, please let there be one other way than this way. And the Father's answer is no. And I think we're inclined when we read through that episode to think, that the Father didn't hear the prayer of Jesus, but he did. And listen to what we're told in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 5. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him, and he was heard. And he was heard. Because Jesus said, Oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. But not my will, but your will be done. And you'll notice in the account of Jesus' suffering that after that point where he had prayed that prayer three times, he seems to have new resolve to go to the cross without looking back. From that point on, he has this unusual courage to keep going. From that point on, Jesus has what we might call stability, steadfastness, staying put, durable. Well, that's the function of prayer. What about the discipline of prayer? Verse 17, David writes, Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in my Distress three times a day. Now, there are scholars who say that this is just another way of saying David prayed constantly. We read that he was facing constant oppression day and night, he mentions in verse 10, and he responds to constant oppression, constant opposition with constant prayer, ceaseless prayer, evening, morning, noon. But it seems to me that this is more like a pattern that David is following. And it's a pattern that's established already at creation. It's part of the rhythm, you might say, of creation. In the Genesis account, the account of creation, there is this recurring refrain, you know, there was evening and morning the first day, there was evening and morning the second day, and so forth. And the world is divided into evening and morning. And evening and morning are phases in our days. There's a time for sleeping, and there's a time for waking, and they're very different times. And I want you to see that this isn't simply a biological cadence, this is a theological cadence, because in the daylight we are in control. We can see, we can make decisions, we can respond to things, but at night when we're asleep, we relinquish control, and our lives and the whole world are in someone else's hands. I don't know if you have this experience, but for me, going to sleep is always transcendent. Do you ever, when you're lying in bed and you know you're very, very close to that moment of falling asleep, do you ever think about what's about to happen? How in a second, without you even realizing it, you're going to lose your powers of consciousness. Your brain is essentially going to shut down. There's not going to be much activity while you sleep. Just a few neurons firing here and there, and that's it. But your heart will continue to pump. Your lungs will continue to inflate and deflate. You'll continue to breathe. And just like that, you'll wake up again. And the powers of consciousness are restored. Restored. And hours have passed where you weren't in control, but someone was. You see, the question to ask when you go to sleep at night, in the evening, is this. With all of the complexity in the world around us, a pandemic raging across the globe, with the realities of my own personal life, at times... Seemingly spiraling. Can I relinquish control? Can I surrender my life to the Lord? And can I put the whole world in his hands for seven hours while I do nothing? Did you know that for some people who make too much of control in their lives. It's very difficult to go to sleep for this reason. Because they know that for a time they're going to be completely passive and what is going to happen while they're sleeping and what shouldn't they be doing when they are, in fact, sleeping. And the question to ask when you wake up in the morning is, given the complexity of life, given the difficulties in the world, given the challenges that we face, how can I get out of bed? How can I possibly face the day? And so in line with the rhythm of creation, with the cadences of evening and morning, we pray. Pray in the evening, pray in the morning. And isn't it interesting how in the book of Psalms we have an evening prayer in Psalm 4, in a morning prayer in Psalm 5, it's as if God is saying, if you don't know what to pray, in the evening, in the morning, here are some psalms to start with. But David here indicates that he prays three times a day. Morning, evening, noon. This was part of his own prayer structure, part of the daily structure that he had in his life for prayer. And I suspect that for most of us, with only a few exceptions, we live with a fair bit of structure in our lives. And we probably have structures around eating and drinking. We probably eat three times a day, roughly at the same time, depending on the kind of work we have. But we probably have three consistent meals. We probably have some kind of habit of exercise. Maybe it's going for a walk, maybe it's going to a gym, but we recognize we need to move and we allocate part of our day for that. We probably have a time, as I said, for going to bed and a time for waking up. If we have habits for eating and drinking and sleeping and waking, why wouldn't we have habits for prayer A structure will give you stability, and you need stability for that moment when you are overwhelmed. When you are overwhelmed, it's too late to build a structure. You cannot build in a storm. The structure needs to be existing. What happens when we are overwhelmed? Well, what happens is our lives become very disordered and very chaotic. And when we are overwhelmed by things, the temptation we have, to which we often capitulate, is to stop with our daily routines and our daily habits. And when people are overwhelmed, you discover that they don't eat well, and they don't sleep well, and they don't exercise at all. They ditch all of their habits, because we fail to see the connection between our habits and our personal stability. What were the therapists and the psychologists saying to us during the stay-at-home order in the pandemic? They were saying, whatever you're doing, keep your daily routines Even if you're not going to go outside, even if you're not going to see anybody, take a shower, wash your hair, shave your face, put on a nice shirt. Keep that basic structure. Well, this is especially true on a spiritual level when it seems as if everything is collapsing. We need that structure in place. We may want to run, we may want to escape. That was David's own inclination. But he didn't run, he didn't escape, because he had a structure. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out to you in distress. And because of the structure, David had stability. And if you have the structure, you can rebuild. If you have structure, you can restore And it's exactly what we see in the story of Daniel. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Daniel in the Bible, but he was in faraway Babylon in exile as a Jew, and he received a promotion from King Darius. He was going to be put in charge of the whole country, and the other bureaucrats and administrators were jealous. And they didn't want to see Daniel promoted in this way, and so they persuaded the king to publish an edict that anyone who prayed to a god or a human other than the king must be thrown into the fiery furnace. Or to the lion's den, rather. Or was it the fiery furnace? Now I'm all confused. Then we read. Here's what it says in Daniel 6. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened to Jerusalem, three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. In a situation much like David, distressed in agony, feeling betrayed, opposed, life in the balance, He kept the structure so his life didn't collapse, went straight home to the upstairs room with the window open to Jerusalem. Three times a day, he prayed, just as he had always done. Here's a second practice in the rule of life that we're recommending. Remember, the point of a rule of life is not to complexify your life, it's to simplify it. A basic set of practices to order our lives around Christ pray three times a day. Now, there is evidence, some evidence in the Bible and even more evidence outside of the Bible, that pious Jews would pray at particular hours, three hours. At the third hour of the day, the sixth hour of the day, and the ninth hour of the day, corresponding for us at 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. The third, the sixth, and the ninth hours. What I find particularly interesting about that is that these are the three hours that are mentioned in connection with the crucifixion of Jesus. When Jesus was put on the cross, it was the third hour, 9 a.m. in the morning, the time when the priests were officiating in the temple, offering the morning sacrifices. And at the sixth hour, Jesus was enshrouded by darkness and dereliction and abandonment. And then at the ninth hour, when the priests were back in the temple officiating, offering the evening sacrifice, as the sun in Palestine at that time of the year began to set, Jesus says, it is finished. And perhaps when we pray three times a day, we should be mindful when we pray in the morning that Jesus was put on the cross. And say, Lord, help me today to deny myself and take up the cross. And perhaps when we pray at noon, we're mindful of how Jesus at noon was enshrouded by darkness. And we can pray, Lord, You were forsaken so that I might be accepted. And perhaps in our evening prayer, when Jesus on the cross said those words, it is finished, we can pray, Lord, receive my life as a sacrifice of gratitude for the work that Jesus has done for me a rule of life, a set of practices to order our lives around Christ. Nothing overwhelming. First, go to church weekly. Secondly, pray three times a day. Can you pray more often? Of course you can pray more often. But you start with a basic structure, three times a day, and you can work upwards from that structure. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we are mindful at this moment of your great love and of the great love of Jesus for us. And in those moments when it seems as if we're enshrouded in darkness, enable us to remember that Jesus was enshrouded in far greater darkness, that he took upon himself all the evils and injustices of the world, and endured them so that there might be a morning and a new day and a new creation and a new world in which injustice is absent, in which sin is gone, in which every tear is wiped away. Lord, enable us to adopt a set of practices, but only insofar as they bring us closer to Christ, to know him more clearly, to love him more dearly, to follow him more nearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.